Hey folks, this podcast goes beyond the saddle as we explore professional careers across the equine industry. I'm your host, Katie Kleinbell. Let's tack up and head out. Dr. Wendy Koch completed her undergrad at University of Texas, Austin, and received her Doctor of Veterinary Medicine from Texas A&M University. After retiring from her career with the USDA as part of the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, she is now an animal advocate who is working with the Morris Animal Foundation to establish funds for equine behavior research. This episode of Beyond the Saddle is brought to you by the Morris Animal Foundation. Learn more about their equine studies and research by visiting morrisanimalfoundation.org. Wendy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. We're looking forward to hearing from you. It's good to be here. Thank you. Well, let's start um, with our little game to kind of break the ice. I have, would you rather, I have a couple of, would you rather this or that questions. So whatever comes to mind, uh, just pick which one you would rather do. There's no right or wrong answer. Would you rather have a set schedule or a schedule that changes every single day? I think I'd rather have a set schedule, but, but do different things every day. That's a good answer. Would you rather shed out all of your horse's hair at springtime? So would you rather do that manually or body clip? Um, manually. Would you rather own a plain Jane Bay horse that's low maintenance and easy to clean or an eye-catching gray, like dapple gray, but he's always constantly filthy? <laughs> I have an eye-catching gray um, <laughs> who stays fairly clean, but I think I'd go for the gray. That's the best of both worlds. <laughs> and then um, in retirement, would you rather live on a beach and hang out, or would you rather spend your time pursuing your passions? Um, I am in retirement, and I am pursuing my passions. I love it. I love it. Well, great. Yeah, let's jump into who you are, um, what you have done in your career, um, and kind of what you're doing now. Talk us through what's going on for you, Wendy. As far as my career goes, I spent 30 years as a veterinarian working for the federal government in animal welfare enforcement. Uh, we enforced the Federal Animal Welfare Act, which unfortunately specifically defines horses as not being animals unless they're being used in biomedical research. So although I did some work with horses, I didn't do a whole lot of work with horses. The agency also enforces the Horse Protection Act, which is a law intended to stop the soaring of Tennessee walking horses. And for those who are not familiar with soaring, it's the practice of using chemicals or chains to cause pain to the front legs of horses so that they pick their feet up higher and win more ribbons. I actually opted out of being in Horse Protection Act enforcement because I believe that the agency is just legitimizing soaring because we are not eliminating it. And when you say, if, if you're a person who soars horses and you can say, you know, well, the federal agents were at the show and they didn't cite anybody. So obviously there was no soaring going on, then people are gonna believe you. And in fact, that wasn't true. And I just didn't want to see sore horses and not be able to do anything about it and make it possible for people to claim that they weren't soaring horses when I knew that they were. Currently, the regulations involving 
course protection enforcement are being rewritten to involve more veterinarians. Currently, there's both veterinary and non-veterinary inspectors. And I think everybody believes that if we involve only veterinarians, maybe the enforcement will be better. So um, that would be a, a possible job for somebody who wants to get into the equine industry. So after my career, I'm still interested in animal welfare, but I now have the opportunity to get back to horses and behavior, which has always been my real interest. And what I am doing at this point is trying to educate people in equine behavior and welfare and also promote research in equine behavior and welfare. Good for you, following your passions, continuing to make the industry a better place. I do have like a follow-up question about your career because what you outlined there talking about the Federal Animal Welfare and Horse Protection Acts, I mean, those are, that's heavy, right? Like those are very important topics, very heavy for you to be involved in. How did you navigate um, what you believe to be right morally and maybe what was best for your career? Because I imagine at times that was a tricky choice. It was. If you work for the federal government, no matter what level you're at, it's a political job. So how successful we were in promoting animal welfare depended on who was in the White House. Um, there were years when it was a very good job, and there were years when it was a very frustrating job. The leaders of the agency would be having to tell us to back off some of the things we were doing. and. I always saw my role really as being the person who continued to advocate for the animals. So when the leaders would tell us to back off on something, I would give them all the reasons why we shouldn't. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, but it kept me from feeling as though, you know, my morals were being violated in, in that um, I would see things that I didn't think should be happening and there would not be anything I could do about it. Sure. Oh, I can only imagine. Well, um, that's kind of converse to what you're able to do now. Um, so talk to us a little bit more about the education and the research that you are doing now um, to help horses and help people understand horse behavior and welfare. I am not actually doing research, but what I am doing is working with Morris Animal Foundation to promote research in equine behavior and welfare. There's very little money that goes into any kind of equine research because the federal government does not provide money for equine research the way it does for human medicine research. So the money depends on donors. And unfortunately, Morse Animal Foundation told me this years ago, and I didn't believe it, but now I do. Horse people are not very good at donating money for research. So for a long time, Morris Animal Foundation has been funding medical research for horses, but nobody was funding behavioral research. And I think research in behavior is also critical. And so when I had the opportunity, I started funding it as best I could myself and trying to encourage Morris Animal Foundation to fund it. And I was eventually successful, and I have been totally thrilled at what they have 
started doing now once they realized that the need was there and was not being fulfilled. That's the research side of it. And as far as educating, I am writing and teaching, not formally, but I've offered to do a clinic at a stable. Um, I've offered to help people, you know, when I see them having behavioral problems, educating them in the best ways to train horses, which is also involved with research because there are research results on that. Most people are not aware of them. So that's kind of been what I've managed to do since I retired and was able to do what I have always really loved. I love that. Well, and thank you for coming and giving back to the industry in such powerful ways and partnering with the Morris team to continue that research and continue advocating. I think that's wonderful. Um, can you talk to us about like why is it important for us to study equine behavior? You know, what are some of the implications of of having that research done? I think all of us are concerned with the welfare of our horses, and behavior and welfare are two sides of the same coin. The only way we can actually identify poor welfare is through the behavior of the horse, because the horse can't talk. And a knowledge of behavior can also tell us how to fix or prevent problems with our horses. For example, stereotypies like weaving are usually due to problems with housing that people may not recognize as being problems. Behavioral problems that horses have are often due to incorrect training which people didn't understand was not the best way to train the horses. And mental health problems in horses are essentially totally ignored. In dogs, for example, there's a lot of research on separation anxiety, and there's research that has resulted in medications that can treat dogs with separation anxiety. Horses also have separation anxiety when they're separated from each other. And there's been very little research on that. There are no drugs approved to treat it. Equine vets are not at all involved in behavior, whereas canine vets usually are, at least to some extent. Equine veterinary students don't get training in behavior. Behavior and welfare, you know, if you're interested in welfare, you should also be interested in behavior and want to see more research on how we should be treating our horses and how we recognize when they're not doing well and how we take care of them when they're not doing well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think you've busted a lot of misconceptions that people might have about equine behavior and equine welfare, um, just in what you said there about best training practices, problems that can be related and, and correlated through research. Is there like one big misconception that you think people have about equine behavior or equine welfare and can we bust it? There's two ways, there's two methods that are used in training horses. One is with rewards and one is with punishment. And punishment really doesn't work. <laughs> you know, it, it tells a horse what not to do, but it doesn't tell it what you do want it to do. And it tends to, um, it's an aggressive action and it tends to promote either total withdrawal or return aggression in horses. So that's part of the reason why I want to educate people in the best ways to train horses. Those of your listeners who've heard about clicker training in dogs, uh, clicker training works for everything, even for people, and it certainly works for horses. It's difficult to do in horses because um, the idea is when the horse does something well, you click and then you treat it, you reward it. 
And if you're in the middle of writing, that can be difficult to do. But there are other ways of rewarding animals. And so that's one of the ways in which I want to advocate for horses is to teach people how to train horses using only rewards and not having to use punishment. There's definitely many ways to look at this, and I'm so glad you guys are doing the research and advocating for it and giving it a platform to help educate people, things they should know and things they should consider. I love it. Since 1959, Morris Animal Foundation has invested over $21 million in more than 525 equine studies. With the support of horse enthusiasts and animal lovers everywhere, the foundation funds studies that address critical equine health concerns, including colic, laminitis, infectious and genetic diseases, cancer, pain, metabolic syndrome, and behavior, leading to advances in prevention, diagnostics, treatments, cures, and welfare policy. Learn more and donate at morrisanimalfoundation.org. Wendy, do you want to talk to us a little bit about what your journey was? You know, what led you through to today? You're very knowledgeable and um, you're obviously fulfilling your passion now. So how did you get here? I have always been interested in animal behavior. Uh, when I was in undergraduate school, behavior was one of my majors. And then I got married and had to follow my husband. And so I ended up teaching for a few years. Uh, when he went back to grad school, I did too. And I went back to studying behavior. And then we got divorced and I went to vet school. And my intent was to be an equine veterinarian because it was a career involved with horses and it paid better than training. But unfortunately, as I said, equine veterinarians don't get trained in behavior. Um, we certainly didn't then, and they still are not getting much of an education in behavior. I wasn't going to be able to follow that part of my passion. And also, I had joined the Army so that I could have an Army scholarship that paid me so that I could afford vet school. So when I got out of vet school, I had to go into the Army. And that was mostly food inspection, which was more interesting than what I thought it would be. And there was some equine medicine involved, but not very much. So it still wasn't really you know, addressing what I wanted to do. But in the meantime, I had discovered that animal welfare had become something that you could do as a career. So when I got out of the Army, uh, I went into that federal job, and then I discovered that enforcing that horses weren't defined as animals when you enforced the Animal Welfare Act. So I really wasn't, still wasn't involved as much in what I really wanted to do. So retiring was almost like starting a whole new life where I can do what I want to do. I can do equine behavior and welfare and, and really enjoy myself while promoting the types of things that I wanna promote. Thank you so much for sharing your story. What a journey. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> well, what's next for you? I love that you're still kind of green and growing, right? Like in retirement, you get to really follow your passion and do what you love. So what's on your horizon? What are you hoping to learn or try or do next? I am going to continue to work with Morris Animal Foundation, and uh, they have indicated that they want to expand what they're doing with the equine behavior welfare research. So that will be a, a growing activity. 
Uh, I'm currently working on a book for equine veterinarians that will try to convince them that they should incorporate welfare and behavior into their practice and explain to them how to do that. And that's taking up a lot of time. But once I finish the book, I'll probably continue writing educational types of things, both for the scientific journals and also for the public. And um, I've considered possibly going into teaching as well and, and having maybe a part-time job with the university teaching just a course or two on equine or, or any animal behavior and welfare. You're just a little busy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I retired, I did not intend to you know, go sit on the beach. I knew that there was a lot of work I still wanted to do. So uh, I am still actively working. I'm just not getting paid for it anymore. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, talk to me about writing your book. Um, I've never written a book, uh, but I think it's something that everybody kind of aspires to that like secret, you know, aspirational goal, but you're doing it. So how's that process been for you? I'm doing it the lazy way. I've gathered together a group of subject matter experts. And so I have people whose careers have actually been devoted to horses and behavior and welfare and research. For example, if someone did their research on foal behavior and welfare, then I have picked that person to write a chapter on foal behavior and welfare and her research and everybody else's research. Um, so my job is to get them to write, get them to cover the things that I think need to be covered and then edit the chapters so that they all fit together as a whole, rather than feeling as though you're jumping from one totally unrelated thing to another. And, you know, the audience for the book is, is a very narrow audience. So I'm trying to tailor it again, specifically to convince vets who right now are not convinced that they should have anything to do with behavior and welfare, that in fact they should, and this is how they can do it. I love that. I think uh, there must be some great conversation happening too, as you go through that process of building those chapters. Yes. You know, not, not everybody agrees on everything when it comes to animal welfare. And so it's, interesting, you know, the group that I've gathered together, we pretty much agree on everything, but there's some minor things that we don't. And discussing how important some particular aspect is and, you know, whether it really needs to be dealt with in detail or not. You know, sometimes I'm saying, I think you need more detail on this. And sometimes I'm saying, I think you need less detail on that. And then we can get into some really fun and interesting conversations on what we really should do together as a team. Yeah, that's challenging, but in a fun way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Great. Great. Wendy, what advice do you have to give someone who's looking to pursue a career like yours or maybe a career in equine behavior and welfare research? What would you say to those folks? I've actually thought about this to some extent. And um, what I would like to do is to encourage people to go into the career of being an equine behavior vet, which is a career that doesn't exist. It's the career I wish I could have had. Um, but even now, all these years later, it still doesn't exist. It's a career, the, the career field would be called applied behavior. 
um, the behavior that I studied was theoretical behavior. So, and, and people would still need to study that, but they'd also need to study applied behavior. And then of course, they'd also need to go to vet school. And if you want to go to vet school, there's a lot of things you need to think about early on. Um, you need to be a good student or you're not gonna get accepted. You're gonna have eight years of college so you need to plan on that and on how you're going to finance it. And you need to understand that when you get to vet school, what you're going to be trained in is physical health, not the mental health side. So you're going to need to get your applied behavior training somewhere other than vet school. And once you put all of that together, then you're going to need to be able to sell yourself because the problem right now is that we're in kind of a vicious circle. People don't think of veterinarians when they're having behavior problems with their horse, so they don't go to the vet with the problem. So the vets who might be interested in getting into equine behavior don't because you can't make a living in equine behavior as a vet because people don't come to the vet with their equine behavior problems. What we need are people who are willing to make their living doing the physical health side of things as a veterinarian, but also educate their clients that vets can also help with the mental health problems, with the behavioral problems that the horses have. If it works as it did with dogs, eventually we will get to the point where somebody can make a living as an equine behavior vet. And, you know, you're still involved in the physical health side of things because Sometimes, well, actually quite often, a behavioral problem will have a physical reason behind it. But um, I would like to see the field of equine behavior become a veterinary field. Hope that maybe some people will get interested. And there are ways that you can actually make money in equine behavior. You could go into equine behavior research either as a veterinarian or not as a veterinarian. Or you could work for a nonprofit that does equine welfare. And the equine welfare nonprofits vary in how well educated they are in training. So that would be a field where someone who had good, a good applied behavior education would be very helpful to the equine welfare nonprofits. I love this vision of the industry. I hope it comes to fruition and I hope it's not that far around the corner. <laughs> I'm doing what I can. <laughs> this is great. Well, let's talk about your horses. So you mentioned that you have a dapple gray. So tell us more. Tell us about your horses. She is a 28-year-old gray Andalusian Arab cross. I've had her for 25 years. She's, she's my third pet horse. And it's apt that she is gray because she has a black and white temperament. She is either hyper anxious or she's napping. There's nothing in between. She's scared of practically everything, but when she's not being scared, she's totally, absolutely relaxed, taking a nap while waiting for you to decide what you're going to make her do next. She was my jumping horse until she did the world's most spectacular spook and totally destroyed a tendon in her left front. And so now she's my trail riding horse for which she is totally unsuited because she's afraid of everything in existence. But we are persisting. And um, I think she's, she's never not gonna be afraid. I mean, that's just a part of her brain, but she's learning to work through it. And um, 
there's times when I am very proud of, of how she handles being afraid of something and still doing what I want her to do. And because her owner is a behaviorist and enjoys training for the sake of training, she is probably fairly unique in that she's learned to do things like painting and fetching and yawning on command and other things that I just decide that I'm going to teach her in addition to the more useful things that people teach their horses. That's so fun. Okay, how does she paint? <laughs> that sounds <laughs> Well, we started kind of like finger painting. I would put paint on her nose and hold up a piece of paper and she would rub her nose on the paper. And so we had things that were kind of like finger paints that kids do. And then I decided that there was no reason why I couldn't teach her to use a paintbrush. So I did. Um, so she paints either way. How cute. Oh my gosh, I love that. I'm going to have to see some of her artwork. <laughs> <laughs> I have videos on YouTube of her painting and fetching and backing into her stall. And if people want to see the videos, I think if you go to YouTube and just search on Tori Horse, you can find them. And Tori is spelled T-O-R-I. Love it. Is that her name, Tori? Yes. I love it. Well, I feel like I know her already. I was going to say, you painted such a beautiful picture of her, and I feel like I know her. And then you told me she paints. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that is so perfect. <laughs> right. Yeah. She, um, one Christmas, I asked her to paint a Christmas tree for me. And my intent was just to give her some green paint and have her put that in the middle of the page and give her some red paint and have her put it around the edges. But she actually painted something that looks like a Christmas tree. And so I use that now at Christmas time when I send out Christmas greetings to people. I send out Tori's Christmas tree. I love that so much. Oh my goodness. Well, you've done some amazing things with your own horse and you're helping the industry in so many ways. So can you share what is your most memorable moment with horses? The thing that comes to mind actually has to do with Tori and with her being the anxious horse that she is. And it actually has to do with training her to back into her stall. Uh, when I first started training her to do things like that, she hated it she would get this expression on her face that was just like, oh no, you're going to ask me to think and I don't understand what you want me to do and I can't do it. And please just tell me what you want me to do and don't make me go through this. I hate this. So when I was training her to back into the stall, you know, at first we did the easy thing where I just positioned her and all she had to do was back up straight. And then we did from either side where she had to make a 90 degree turn you know, I, I had to teach her one way and then I had to teach her the other way. And by the time she learned the second way, she'd forgotten how to do the first way. And so there was a lot of, you know, Tori, you can do this. Look, this is how you do it. You can do it. And then one day she was standing outside of her stall waiting for me to put her up. And I had gone in the stall to do something and um, I was coming out and I was standing in the doorway and she was trying to come in. And I wouldn't let her in because she was coming in forwards, you know, so I'm standing there and I'm saying, you can't come in, you know how you're supposed to come in. And instead of giving me the, oh, no, I can't do this look, she gave me a look that I interpreted as, I know what you want 
and I know how to do it and I know I can do it. Just give me a moment and I'm going to figure this out. And she stood there for a few seconds and you could literally see the wheels turning in her head. And then she turned around and I got out of her way and she backed in. And that was a 180 degree turn. And we had never done that before. And she was so proud of herself. She didn't even want her treat. She wanted me to be excited with her about what a genius she was. And, um, you know, we spent probably a minute or two just ooing and eyeing over what an absolute genius she was to have figured that out all by herself. And boy, was she ever smart and a really special horse. And I was so impressed. And this was just wonderful. And it totally changed her attitude. After that one little incident, when we would have training sessions, instead of giving me the, oh my God, you're going to make me think, and I can't, and I don't understand, and I hate this, and I don't want to do it. She had this, oh, okay, you're going to present me with a puzzle, and I'm going to solve it because I'm a genius, and I can do anything. It was just, I mean, even thinking back on it, I just get the chills. It was just to, to have a horse that was so helpless and hopeless in her temperament and turn her into a horse that actually had total self-confidence in what she could do. And it all happened just in one light bulb moment for her. It, it was just fantastic. That's what it's all about. Uh, well, Wendy, this has been great to have you on the podcast and to tell your story. Thank you so much for sharing with us your journey and um, what, what you're up to now and all the ways that you're helping the Morris Animal Foundation. Um, can you share the best way that our audience can connect with you? Probably the best way is by email. And my email is V for Virginia, W-K-O-C-H at hotmail.com. And if you email me, I will advocate. <laughs> I will advocate for for donating not not only to behavior research but to medical research, to horse rescues, to all the things. And I will also try to educate. So if you're curious about applied behavior and better ways to train horses, um, I can help with that as well. Thank you for that. Yes. Um, reach out if you feel so inclined and absolutely donate. Let's get that on everybody's radar. Keep that top of mind and you can make a difference in the equine industry. So yeah, donate. I love it. Um, Wendy, what would you like to leave our audience with? Um, just something like the number one takeaway from this episode or maybe your favorite quote, just something to leave them thinking. Try to learn the science of training. I appreciate the opportunity to fulfill my passion by um, educating people in the importance of equine behavior and welfare and, and donating and learning about applied behavior so that you can train your horses in the best way possible. So I've, I've appreciated this opportunity and I'm glad you extended the invitation to me. Thanks for riding along. Know someone that would be great to interview? Have questions you'd like answered on the podcast? Send me an email at beyondthesaddlepodcast at gmail.com or join the conversation on social media. You can connect with us and learn more about the Beyond the Saddle podcast by following us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond the Saddle Podcast. Find more episodes anywhere that you get your podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Beyond the Saddle is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network.